Morning, friends. Thank you for your welcome, and thank you, Joan, for that lovely uh, little talk about your experience of Christ over, over many years. I have 27 years to go, I think, before I'm 90. Please don't hurt yourselves doing mental arithmetic. Um, but I was reflecting whilst I was listening to Joan, I thought to myself, wow, I, I, I hope I'm that clear and that lucid when I'm 90. And then I thought, well, actually, now would be good. <laughs> David made mention of the, uh, the fact it was a lovely, sunny autumn day uh, here. And uh, I must say, I'm glad to see it. I just got back from the, the snows and the sub-zero temperatures of South Dakota yesterday evening. And so it's lovely to see some greenery. The downside is that uh, I'd been traveling for about 28 hours, and my body is currently telling me it's about 3 a.m. in the morning. So, so over to Joan again, I think, for, <laughs> for something clear and lucid. Well, now, the overarching title of your studies so far in Hebrews, I understand, to have been uh, living in Christ, living in Christ. That expression, in Christ, occurs very frequently in the New Testament, particularly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. In Christ. It, uh, for many years, put me in mind of the story of Noah and his ark. Um, you know, when the, when the flood came and the ark floated on the surface of the waters, there were only two categories of people on the earth. There were the living, that was a very small group of people, and they were all in the ark. And then there were the dead, that was a very larger group of people, and they were outside the ark, that is why they, they were the dead, you see. Those who were in the ark were saved from the judgment of God when the judgment came in the form of a flood by virtue of being, well, you get the point, in the ark. They were saved. Now, the Bible says that those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ are now in Christ. Consequently, we have nothing to fear from the coming judgment of God. It will fall on the world, but it will not touch us because we are in Christ. We are in Christ because we have asked Christ to come into our lives. Well, now... If you go back to the story of the flood, we will get into our Ephesian passage, but if you go back to the story of the flood, it, it, it can't escape your notice that having been saved from the flood by virtue of being in the ark, pretty much the first thing that Noah does when he comes out of the ark is to behave in such a way as to suggest that actually it was no big deal to be saved. God had done something wonderful for him. He had saved him from God's judgment. And Noah celebrates effectively by getting out of the ark and getting drunk. Now, that takes us into our passage for Ephesians. Because your title for this morning is not just living in Christ, but it, it's we must be changed as a consequence of being in Christ. You see, Noah was not actually much changed as a consequence of having been saved by virtue of being in the ark. 
But Paul's having none of that in Ephesians. He's just spent about three chapters, the first three chapters of the book, telling people the good things that God has done, the good things God is doing, and the good things God is going to do. And then he takes the next three chapters to basically say, now that should make a difference to how you live. (laughs) Don't just go on living as if that wasn't all true. In Ephesians 1, he says, God has adopted you as sons and daughters into his family. Don't just go on living as if that hadn't happened. Let that make a difference to you. God has redeemed you and forgiven you. Now you must live redeemed lives, forgiven lives, because you're in Christ. And that should make a big, big difference. Conversion, in fact, is meant to make a a difference. If it doesn't, it's don't really know why we would call it conversion. If conversion doesn't mean change, it doesn't actually mean a whole heap of anything, does it really? Back in uh, May 1967, at the cost of £563 million, 13 million homes across the UK were invaded by workmen. Do you remember that, some of you? It started May 1967 in Burton-on-Trent, Derbyshire, and it finished in 1977, ten years later. It was a program of nationwide conversion. What am I talking about? That's right, the change to natural gas. 40 million appliances were changed. Now, externally, those appliances did not appear much changed, but they were now running on a new power. A new power. Well, that's what conversion is about. It doesn't necessarily make an immediate impact on the way we, way we look, although that's a shame in some ways, I suppose, isn't it? But it makes a tremendous difference on the sort of people we are. And it's meant to make a difference on on how we live. So if you're converted, says Paul, if you're in Christ, live like it. Live like it. You've now got a new power flowing into you and hopefully flowing out of you. So conversion, being in Christ. So for example, let's pick it up in Ephesians chapter 4. So for example, says Paul, Ephesians 4 and verse 25, just... uh, Uh, A few verses before my allotted passage, Ephesians 4.25, Paul says, now you're in Christ, there are certain things which are no longer appropriate for you. It wasn't inappropriate for you to be like this before, but now you're in Christ, there are certain things which are inappropriate. Lying is one, verse 25, uh, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Uh, Stealing is another, verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Um... Holding grudges is another. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun, verse 26, go down while you are still angry. Do you just see, just in those few verses, three things that Paul says, now that you're in Christ, these things are no longer appropriate. Lying, stealing, holding grudges. Um, I was in, uh, many of you, who, some of you who have been to America, you will know that pretty well all, all through the United States, there's some big stores. Walmart, yes? Uh, I mean, actually, you've got essentially the same thing. At, um, what, what's that big place on the M5? Cribs, Cribs Causeway, that's right. Well, these great big Walmart stores. And in one Walmart star, store I was in just the other week there, um, they had a big box uh, in the middle of a store which was called a coat drop. And anybody who got a coat they no longer needed and it was a bit worn or whatever could just drop that coat off. they just take it off and drop it in the box. Now, obviously, it then went on to be given out to somebody less fortunate. But the idea of taking off a garment and replacing it with something else is what Paul is talking about here. 
He says, get rid of, like you would take off an old coat, get rid of lying, get rid of stealing, get rid of holding grudges. Uh, And just notice, incidentally, that with regard particularly to those sins, uh, Paul doesn't say, phase them out of your life gradually. He says, don't do it. If anyone stole, let him steal no longer. Now, there are some things go on in our lives which take years for us to get the better of, aren't there? Lust, pride, envy, ego, these things come out of us like a tooth being pulled from the jaw. But some sins are just to be stopped. You imagine someone is a pickpocket. And uh, uh, one week they have uh, stolen 30 wallets. Then they go to a meeting on the Sunday or Saturday night and they hear the gospel and they ask Christ to come into their lives. They get in Christ. And a week later they stand up to tell people about their their conversion. What would you think if you heard them say, well, you know, Jesus has made a tremendous difference to my life. Uh, The week before I got saved, I stole 30 wallets, and this week I've only taken 12. (laughs) You say, oh, well, that's real progress. That's not progress. If you stole, stop it. If you were a liar, don't. That's, if you're a person who harbors grudges, get over it. Deal with it. Because that's what it means to be in Christ. It means you have a new power coming into you. And certain things are no longer appropriate. Well, let's pick up the reading at where I'm actually meant to start, which is verse 29, and read a few verses together. But we're continuing this thought of things which are no longer appropriate for us now that we are in Christ. This is the difference that being a Christian is meant to make. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Conversion is meant to make a difference to the way that we, way that we speak. Uh, nothing unwholesome should come out of our mouths. Now, uh, you are, of course, quite free to disagree with my opinion. Um, I'm a man who believes that everybody is entitled to my opinion, so I'm going to give it to you. But this verse clearly would have something to say about using bad language, what television uh, filmmakers and producers euphemistically call strong language. But I don't think that actually is necessarily, uh, certainly not all that the verse is saying. It's not just saying don't swear, don't cuss as our American friends would say. No, no, it's rather more than that. I had an interesting discussion whilst I was away with our American hosts and with an evangelist from the UK that I had taken with me. And uh, we were talking about summer teenage camp programs and camp work, and both my American host and my friend who was with me from the UK were saying that they come down very heavily on their camps on any young people who blaspheme. Anyone who says, oh God, oh Jesus, whatever, they come right down on like a ton of bricks. They said, in fact, we, we even sometimes send people home if they take the Lord's name in vain. And I said, well, I don't. Why? Because I approve of blasphemy? Not at all. Because I find bad language amusing or, or somehow edifying? No, no, not, not even slightly. No, no. Uh, but, but I don't send people home for that. I do not expect in the course of one week with a group of teenagers to change the speech patterns which they have been developing for the last 15 years. And actually, I'm not even interested in doing that. I'm out after bigger game. My game, my aim is to get them converted because when someone is in Christ, the Lord deals with their speech patterns from the inside. But sometimes we have to work with the Lord in this, don't we? We're not to speak to people 
or about people in a way which is un, unwholesome, uh, unhelpful, unkind. Untrue words are unhelpful. After what is unwholesome talk? Well, unwholesome, unwholesome talk is talk which doesn't build others up. Unwholesome talk is talk which pulls people down. Wholesome talk, well, that, that would be uh, words according to verse 29 which are helpful for building others up according to their needs. So conversion should change the way we speak. Conversion, if we're in Christ, that should change our perspective as well. Look at verse, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that's an interesting passage, not least because of what it tells us about the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we know from Scripture, has personality. He is a person. He is a he. He is not an it. He has a mind. He has a voice. He has a will. He has the ability to act. And here we see the Holy Spirit has emotions. He actually feels. He can be made glad. He can be made sad. And the Christian perspective, the perspective of a person in Christ, is that we don't want to make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. We don't want to sadden or grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, that, that, that's a perspective that only those who are in Christ have. I mean, if, I'll give you a bit of my testimony, and pardon me for my bluntness, but uh, before I became a Christian, I cared a lot about my feelings. I cared just a little about the feelings of my family and friends, but apart from that, everybody else could go to hell, as far as I was concerned. If my behavior and my words and my attitudes, other people didn't like them, that was just so much tough luck for them. And as for God, God wasn't even remotely on my radar. In terms of worrying about how I was making God feel, that, that didn't even enter my wildest thoughts. You see, But when you get in Christ then we begin to be concerned, not just for the feelings of our friends and our families and, and other people, but about God's feelings too. And so don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, now we say, what, what grieves the Holy Spirit? Well, says Paul, it's not a secret, I'll tell you about it. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness. That grieves the Holy Spirit. And rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Those are the things which grieve the Holy Spirit, along with the things he's already mentioned, which are speaking falsehood, telling lies, bearing grudges, stealing from other people. These things grieve the Holy Spirit and they're inappropriate for Christian people. And I was struck as I was um, looking through those verses that I've just read there in verse, verse 30 and verse 31. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, that's an interesting one, along with uh, Roger Chilvers and uh, uh, Martin Irwin and other counties evangelists known to you. I've, I, I've signed a memorandum of understanding with, with counties evangelistic work, or counties as it's now called, and I was looking through it. I mean, you know, you sign these things and then you read them afterwards, and I was looking through this, and, um, and, and I, I was interested to see that if I was involved in a brawl, I would lose my job. Uh, I'm not planning to be involved in a brawl. Though. No, don't push me. Um, well, what really struck me about it was you've got bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and previously he's mentioned lying and stealing and holding grudges, but also in that same list, did you notice, and slander. Slander. It's, it's, uh, it's a sin of the tongue, and it's a real killer, isn't it? You know, see, we, we might read that list and say, well, I, I'm not bitter about anybody. 
I'm not bitter towards anybody, and I certainly haven't hit anybody. I haven't been involved in a brawl. Most of us haven't raised our fists in anger since we were in the school playground, and some of us not even then. Last time I actually raised my fist in anger was to a man who burgled my house, so I felt somewhat justified. <laughs> but most of us haven't raised our fists in, in, in anger on anybody, so we're feeling pretty good, aren't we? Until we read about these sins of the tongue. Slander, slander. Talking about people and saying things about them, running them down behind their, their back. Well, now, Paul says, don't just stop doing all these bad things because you're in Christ, but because you're in Christ, uh, put something in their place. So instead of rage, anger, bitterness, brawling, slander, and every form of malice, verse 32, be kind. Be kind. I've I've sometimes been asked to to preach in churches on, uh, I remember once said, come and talk to us about kindness. Uh, Do you know, I find that an extraordinarily difficult thing to talk about. And the reason is not because it's complicated, but because it's not complicated. Do you seriously, would you seriously think it would be helpful to you if I spoke for the next five minutes about what it means to be kind? Do you not understand what it means to be kind? The Bible doesn't say, analyse it, just do it. Just be kind. Be compassionate. Have a bit of fellow feeling for people. Understand what they're going through. Sympathise with their weaknesses. And forgive each other. Forgive each other. Be kind. Be compassionate. Listen, in, in our thinking, be hard-headed, be forensic, be analytical, be logical. The mind does matter, but don't, don't be unempathic. Don't be unsympathetic. Don't be hard-hearted. You can be hard-headed without being hard-hearted. You can think clearly and still feel deeply. Be kind and compassionate to one another. In short, chapter 5, verse 1, be to others the way God is to you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. You say, what, what, what does it mean to be kind? It means to be like Jesus. What does it mean to be forgiving? It means to be like Jesus. What does it mean to be compassionate? It means to be like Jesus. So it's not rocket science, is it? it it's, it's not one of those verses we go away and analyze at great length. It's just one of those scriptures you read and say, yes, Lord, I need to be kinder, I need to be more compassionate, I need to be more forgiving, and I'm going to get on and do it. Why? Because I'm in Christ. You've done so many great things for me, you've saved me from the coming judgment of God, and as a consequence, I'm going to live my life in a different way. All right, and so we, we press on. What else grieves the Holy Spirit? What else is inappropriate for those who are in Christ? Pick it up, chapter 5, verse 3. Well, says Paul, look, among you, you who are in Christ, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And uh, that again, you see, is a... Verse 5 is a very interesting thing. For all of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, <laughs> such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. You see, that, that word greedy is slotted into that list, rather like slander was slotted in the other one, wasn't it? You, know, you had a list, don't be bitter, don't be angry, don't be full of rage, don't be bearing grudges, don't slander people. And then you get this one, um, don't be immoral, don't be impure, don't be greedy. It's, it's almost like, see, the way we work things out, humanly speaking, if you were drawing up a list of the terribleness of sins, 
You might have kind of anger and rage and brawling and lying and stealing up here in your list, but, but greed? Well, that's a kind of puppy sin, isn't it? You know, it's just, uh, not according to Paul. It grieves the Holy Spirit, and it is completely inappropriate for, for God's people. So, what else? Well, dirty jokes are out, obviously. But using your tongue to thank God is in. Do you see how it's always a positive? Don't just, don't just not do bad things, says Paul, because you're in Christ. Actually positively do good things. So, verse 4, there shouldn't be any obscenity, foolish talk, of course, joking. That's all with the tongue. They're out of place. But rather, what is appropriate for our mouths and our tongues now? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And it's all a very serious business because in verses 5 and 6, Paul basically says this. If our lives are characterized by immorality and impurity and dishonesty and anger and rage and slander and greed, that's what he's saying. If our lives, not if we occasionally slip into those, we all slip. We all fall into sin from time to time. There's no doubt about that, and the Bible makes wonderful provision for us when that happens. If, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. So if we slip, that's all right, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But if our lives are characterized by these things, then I think there's a serious question whether or not we can honestly consider ourselves to be in Christ or not. Because what Paul says is this, well, you can be sure about this, nobody who's immoral, impure, greedy, idolatrous, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of such things. God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. I believe Paul is saying, if, if, if your life is always like that, if goodness is the exception, rather than sin being the exception, well, then you're quite possibly not saved at all, frankly. Because there just hasn't been a change in your life commensurate with what it really means to be in Christ. And then he goes on to, to point out that uh, bad companions will, will drag us down, so we need to be very careful not to be infected by other people's darkness. Pick it up in verse 8. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light then. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord and have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and so, so Paul goes on. We are people of the light. Be careful we do not get infected by other people's darkness. In fact, he says in verse 15, look, you need to wise up about this. You need to wise up. Don't be stupid. Be very careful then how you live. Live like wise, not live not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of, of every opportunity. Don't think that you can join in with the sins of ungodly people and somehow escape uninfected. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He's not teaching that we should be isolated from non-Christian people, but he is teaching that we should be separated from them. It's not isolation, it's separation. Of course, we interact with unbelievers. We need to do that. We want to do that. We are living in this world and we need to be playing a part in this world and bringing our contribution to the party. That, that, that's all a given. But at the same time, we need to be careful we don't get infected by the darkness of other people and we don't partner with them in their sins. And then he says, now make the most of the opportunities that you have. Redeem the time. It goes so fast. 
And when other people are getting intoxicated with wine and high on drugs and all sorts of things, you get your boost from God. You get high on God. You be intoxicated with the Spirit. Do you see that in verse Verse 17 and 18, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, it's an interesting thing to me, because usually if, if something is full of something, it means that, that it's got more of that substance in it. You know, you have a glass of water, you've got an inch of water in the bottom of the glass, uh, the glass is not full, to fill the glass up, you actually put more water in, don't you? That's how it works normally. Spiritually, it's not quite the same. Spiritually, being filled with the Spirit doesn't actually mean that you get more of God's Spirit and I get more of God's Spirit in me. It means God actually gets more access to me. He gets more of me rather than I get more of him. Be filled with the Spirit. And as some of you have heard me say before, um, years ago when, uh, when my, my mother-in-law... It's gone cold. Um, <laughs> years, ago, years ago when my mother-in-law used to come and visit us... Um, that wasn't a coarse joke, was it? Don't want to fall foul of my own preaching here. Um, when Rita's mother was well enough to come and visit us, we, I would um, go and pick her up um, from her home in Bournemouth, drive her up to our home in the Midlands, or, or we, we'd sort of meet her. And uh, one way or another, when we got to our house, I would say to my mother-in-law, come on in, Mum, it's lovely to have you here. Uh, our home is your home. Right? Um, I did not say to her, it's great to have you here, Mum. We've made up a bed in loft for you, and we're going to pass your meals up three times a day, if you're lucky. Because if I'd put her in the loft on a camp bed, believe me, I was tempted, but if I, if, if I put her in the loft on a camp bed, she would undeniably have been in my home, but she would not have been at home, would she? But we say to her mother-in-law, come on in, our home is your home. There are no no-go areas. You want to use a long mirror in our room, come and use it. You want the television on, put it on. You want, you know, the food is here. Make yourself at home. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this whole business of being filled with the Holy Spirit often has kind of huge emotional and spiritual and ecstatic overtones when people talk about it. At essence, being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we have made Christ at home in our lives. And there are no, no no-go areas. And there are consequences to doing that, which Paul picks up, and I will as well as I draw to a close. Spirit-filled people, I suggest to you, are happy to talk with one another about the Lord. They are happy to talk about spiritual things with their fellow believers. And I'm picking it up in verse 19. Be filled with the Spirit, he said, and then verse 19, speak to one another. Well, that would be a start. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Spirit-filled people, secondly, are characterized by thankfulness to God. Always, verse 20, giving thanks to God. Don't take God's blessings for granted. David was reminding the children. I thought it was a very brave thing that he did to ask the children to talk about you know, something they were sort of thankful for this morning. And they all stand there looking at the ceiling and the walls and the carpet, hoping for inspiration. And I, I thought, I hope he doesn't ask me. Because <laughs> I'd be looking at the ceiling and the walls. 
And then he reminded him, well, what about your homes? And presumably that, that kind of comment was predicated on the assumption that they are grateful for their homes, and I guess most of them are. But just remind them, don't take for granted the good things God does. Spirit-filled people are thankful. They are grateful. They are not grumblers. I don't care if somebody sings and speaks in tongues, if they jump up and down, if they preach like a house on fire. I don't care if they fall over and bark like a dog, roar like a lion, crack like a duck, or whatever they do. If they're a grumbler, they're not spirit-filled. Spirit-filled people are grateful people. Grateful people. And spirit-filled people are cooperative, not contentious. Pick it up with me. Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you you see where those truths are coming from? I believe they are truths. These are the consequences of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And forget about all the verse divisions and the chapter divisions, these things. The whole rest of the chapter 5 is about the consequence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it starts there in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when, my, when I was a boy, my father used to take me to watch professional all-in wrestling at Wembley Town Hall, what we used to call the grunt and groan boys. Not these American superstars, but this was much more earthy altogether. And we'd watch professional wrestling. And wrestling bouts, for those of you who amazingly may not be aficionados of all-in professional wrestling, I don't understand how that can have escaped your attention, but anyway... Um, Wrestling bouts were generally concluded and decided on the basis of, of uh, two falls, two submissions, or a knockout. Yeah? Now, um, a fall was where one wrestler pinned his opponent's shoulders to the mat for a count of three. Uh, a knockout is self-explanatory. And a submission meant that you got, one wrestler got the opponent in a grip of, of such complexity, uh, which was so excruciatingly painful that they couldn't get out of it and they couldn't bear it, so they submitted it. They yielded. They, they give in. You know, you, you're driving in America. Some of you who've done that will, will know that often uh, you go to a road, you expect to see a stop sign. It doesn't say stop. It says yield. Yield. Submit. Submit to the other person who's coming in the opposite direction or coming up to that junction. Now, Paul says, first of all to all of us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then rather more contentiously by today's standards, he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands. Is he saying that we should submit to one another because if we don't, the consequences will be so excruciatingly painful? that we? Is that what he says when he goes on to talk about wives submitting to their husbands? The wives must give in and do what their husbands want, otherwise their husbands will hurt them. There's no mandate for that in the Bible at all. No mandate for bullying in the home at all in the Bible. There's no mandate for bullying in the church. He says, do it out of reverence for Christ. Do it because you're in Christ. And do it because your brothers and sisters are also in Christ. And that is a consequence of being filled with the Spirit. So, live like you're saved. Ditch the inappropriate stuff. Develop the positive stuff. Because conversion is meant to make a difference, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this intensely practical and hard-hitting passage of your word. Having heard the sermon, Lord, help us now in the doing of it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, David.